Welcome to Leadership Revealed, where John Paul shares his no-nonsense approach to all things leadership and scaling businesses. John interviews some of the most successful people in their industries to see what it takes to become a great leader. Be prepared for the truth about leadership and business. Please welcome your host, serial entrepreneur and top-selling author, John Paul. everyone and welcome to another edition of Leadership Revealed. And in this episode, I interview Sheila Walsh, who is one of Ireland's leading leadership experts and coaches. Um, and we have a fantastic conversation about her views and her ethos on leadership. In particular, she feels very strongly, as I do as well, about authentic leadership, how you can try and be your true self, but how you can get the best out of others. The old style of hero leadership, where you are the top person at the top of the tree, that's all gone now. That's very 10-year-old, 15-year-old types of leadership. So I'm sure you're going to enjoy this, and you're going to really get a lot of value out of it. So I hope you enjoy myself when I interview Sheila Walsh. So Sheila, thank you so much for joining us on Leadership Revealed. Um, just for our viewers and uh, watchers and listeners who haven't heard about you before, can you just give them a little bit of an introduction to yourself and, and all about your views on leadership? Brilliant. Um, thanks a million for having me, John. Um, I suppose the first thing to say is I've worked um, with leaders like a lot longer than maybe professionally, but I'll, I'll stick to the professional piece. Um, so I'm about 11 years in private practice now, and I've been working with CEOs, leaders, senior teams, management um, during that time. And that's changed a lot over the last 11 years. I tend to specialize in leadership and inclusion now, which has just been where naturally my career has progressed and where um, where also the world of work has progressed. So I think they go hand in hand. And um, when you're working with leaders, there's a lot of learning as you go, as well as having some really good models and shapes and values that play you also have to be responsive and we've seen that over COVID. So a lot of what's going on now and a lot of the future of work and leadership for the future of work involves that element of understanding leadership from more of a relational point of view. And then the inclusion piece is really, really important to be able to be fit for work, fit for practice in five, 10 years. What is inclusive leadership? What, what, what does that entail? Yes. So lots of people talk about it from and they, they kind of collapse two things together. They think it's uh, leaders who just are nicer. You know what I mean? That, that they're less hierarchical or less dominating or like less kind of directive. But inclusive leadership is, is, is a type of leadership in and of itself. It, there is a number of characteristics that a leader needs in order to include people and still create performance and return on investment. So previously, when we talked about inclusive leadership, people talked about leaders just being more inclusive. And they thought that that just meant like being nice to people and getting them to share their opinions, even if they didn't matter. And, and it was kind of tokenistic and a little bit um, mm. manipulative, maybe a little bit, you know, that kind of like manipulative side of the networking. That's how it was being dressed or sold. But really inclusive leadership is, is learning how to include people utilizing your leadership so that you can help people um, bring all of themselves in, bring their diversity that you may not know about. We're not just talking about superficial, visible di diversity, We're talking about diversity of thought, diversity of background, and utilizing that for better outcomes, for the team to feel better, but also for the actual um, outcome that's created. So loads of research has told us that inclusive leaders support 
um, more innovation, more creativity, better employee engagement, more reciprocal relationships with employees. So it's actually utilizing how you relate to your employees and include them in decision making so that you can get a better return on investment, so that you can improve performance, your own as a leader, but also your teams. And therefore, then whatever the results are for the customers as well. How would you say, or what would be the best way to, to morph into a better inclusive leader? Because a lot of you know, my, my industry's um, property, it's state agency. We've got a lot of the, uh, dare I say, the old boys club kicking about. So if you're a 50, 60 year old, old boy, and you've been, you've had a particular type of, of leadership skill, how would you become more inclusive? Is it, is it possible at that age? It's possible at any age because it's actually a practice. It's not even like having those values would be fabulous start, but it's actually a practice just like it's a skill, just like you learn to speak in a particular way to certain people or you learn to, um, I don't know, like you speak to a three-year-old differently to like maybe a 50-year-old. There's a reason for that, but that's that's kind of inclusive, like a natural inclusive thing. You know that the three-year-old probably won't understand what you're saying the way the 50-year-old will. Well, inclusive leadership is a skill where you actually say, how effective is the way I speak and the way I engage and the way I make decisions? How effective is that outside of my norm or my kind of core group? So most of us gravitate to people like us. It's a natural thing. So hands up, being inclusive is not a natural thing. It's a skill we have to develop. We tend to be exclusive, just like we used to eat with our hands most most societies now eat with utensils of some sort. We used to, uh, people always get a laugh at this. We used to use toilets, let's put it that way. And we've evolved into the use of toilets. So, so inclusion is an evolution of how we interact with each other and how we engage within society. So like, first off, the majority of my leadership coaching clients are, to be honest, they're, they're men between 45 and 67. So I, I, even though I work with everyone, that's the age group of the most of the people that are in leadership positions in Ireland and the UK and Europe that I work with. So they come in. We're not necessarily saying, how do I become inclusive? We look at how do I become more effective? Mm. And generally, there's a gap then when we look at effectiveness and performance with inclusivity. There's a gap in terms of blind spots, a lack of knowledge about where the market really is, a lack of knowledge about what people are buying now, why they're buying that way. Mm. The, re- the fact that the workforce is now intergenerational. So this is a really big one. Um, right. Previously, you go into an organization, you work your way up, uh, you age. So your age became an, kind of an equal to your capacity as a leader. But now we're seeing that actually people entering the workforce their first year have have skills that some people who've been in the workforce 10 years don't have. So we're looking at this equalizing of the workforce as it becomes more intergenerational. So. Some leaders are saying, what do I do with the the person who's requiring me to make a social justice statement? Like, I don't even know what that means. Right. Or what do I do? They 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 um, they only text back. They won't let me you know, they won't actually meet me on a phone call. They won't have a phone call with me. So there's all this kind of what do I do with with these changes? And that's where the gap of inclusive leadership becomes really evident is because most of us, when we're faced with differences, we judge it. So they're saying, oh, those people and, and whoever those people are, it's always othering. Those people don't know how to talk anymore. Those people don't meet in person anymore. Those people like there's all these kind of judgments because actually the truth is I don't know what to do mm-hmm. when this is the way someone's approaching me and engaging me. I don't know what to do when somebody's asking for something different to what I've been asked for before. Or I don't know what to do because I'm really high performer here, but I'm being told that socially or with people, 
I'm rude or out of date or not PC enough. So inclusive leadership actually just naturally shows up often in the gap of, you know, how are we engaging with the reality of work today and what's really here? It's a good point, actually, but I I suppose it's if you've run your business a set way for 10, 15, 20 years, and all of a sudden you've got to be more inclusive. One, I can imagine where it's change management, isn't it? It's really scary if you don't know the future and you're looking at your your staff and some of them are young and upcomers and they're probably better at a lot of things than you are. So that's the first thing. And and secondly, it's it's that fear of the unknown, like where do I fit into it as well? And and giving up that control of being a leader. Mm, I, I love that. So the biggest part of inclusive leadership is um, it kind of falls into some of the kind of participatory leadership or some of that kind yeah. of facilitated leadership mm. where you lead by creating environments where people can thrive. Yes. Instead of the old style hero leadership where and, and that's where that kind of hierarchical like, oh, I'm the boss, therefore I have the answers. Inclusive leadership allows you to know what you know, not know what you don't know and harness the power of your team. And that's why it improves performance. But it cre- there is a challenge with our ego and with a sense of saying, and, and I was listening to one of your podcasts like about the ego. I think it's really important to have an ego, but you have to manage the ego. The ego, yeah. if the ego is managing us, we have some real problems. Yeah. And when you're faced with a situation where you may become irrelevant, we'll say in the contents of diversity and inclusion or the contents of performance, that your way of leading isn't appropriate anymore yeah. or what worked for you before is now being called out. And look, we've seen that with a lot of the Me Too movement. We've seen that with a lot of like Black Lives Matter. We know that the ways things were done before are not just not okay, they don't work. Yes. You know, just because they worked before, they don't work now. Yeah. Um, and I don't think they worked before in, in terms of those two movements, but we ignored them because of the power structures. We now see that those kind of movements are equalizing power structures. And that is making some very established leaders really uncomfortable. And I suppose this is the piece. You can either you can either ignore it and wait for that moment where you're showing up in the group or you're really uncomfortable or you're having to shut someone down from saying something because you don't know what to do with it. Or you can do what a lot of the people, the leaders that I work with do is they say, right, I'm going to deal with this in the background privately with an informed coach. I'm going to have these conversations that I can't have publicly that I know are confidential. And I'm going to have someone walk me through it so that I can be informed and effective. And I'm going to do it in a way that doesn't need to be called out first or shamed. And I suppose there's a kind of courage and bravery that that takes. And I think a little bit of entrepreneurial spirit. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the leaders that come to me are well established by the time they get to me, either they've set up their own business or they're just, and they've entered into someone else's business and became a leader, but you kind of need to know that you're on the cusp of something. And do we, do we lead on this cusp or do we fall behind and wait for the fallout that may occur? Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I suppose the people who work with me generally come with that courage. They have a little bit of, I know I'm out of date. I'm really uncomfortable with it. I'm really worried that it's going to be called out. I don't want to be, I don't want it to be said that I've aged out of my you know, leadership or that I'm kind of out of date, but I don't, I don't know where to start with that. That's, I think most people in that kind of senior position need to do it privately and tend to do it privately in the background where it's never going to be said, but they get the skill set. They, they get challenged as well. I think that's a really big one, actually, John Paul, is that a lot of the time when we get to the more senior you become, the less people challenge you. Yes. Because the more yes people you get around you. And I remember I was working with a leader and uh, we, we went into the room and I said, like, come here. I have a real issue with something that like he presented something. And I said, look, there's I have a real issue. Like you're missing something here. 
And he, he was like, well, don't you think someone on my team would have told me that? No. And I was like, well, who, who's in charge of their pay rises? Who's in charge of their promotions? Yeah. Who, like, who's deciding who's your, ne- your second in command? He said, well, I am. I said, so I wouldn't tell you. And he yeah. was like, oh. it was the first time he realized that the further up you went, even though he had great relationships with his team, that actually they, there was more reasons not to tell him the truth yeah. than to tell him the truth. There was just more reasons to do it. Um, and, and so I was the first time I was the first person that had sat across from him. I think we'd worked out in eight years who couldn't lose out by telling him the truth in any form. I couldn't like the contract was there. He, he might have hated the process. We might have loved the process, but I wasn't going to lose out by by working with him honestly on the process. But it had been eight years since he actually had a conversation with someone who wouldn't lose out by working with him, by calling him out. Yeah. And that's what you need. I mean, you, you know, non-exec directors get called a critical friend. When you've got a board of directors, we've got a board and it's great because with, there's five of us on it and they tell me, wind your neck in, John. You know, that's a, that's a terrible idea or good one. You, you know, you, you go with that and you need that, that accountability. And being, being a leader, and I, su- I suppose when you're, when you're doing what you're saying is you've got to have that level of vulnerability, but be okay with being vulnerable as well. Not being a big alpha male thinking I can't give up a smidgen of control. Mm. And, and I think the thing is that control is is actually a response usually to anxiety. So usually it's a response to a, a feeling of inferiorness or it's a feeling of not being good enough. And that dominant approach, that lack of being able to own when you need support mm-hmm. is actually well, from it's a telltale for anyone who's trained in any level of kind of people. It's a it's a telltale sign. When I see controlling behavior, I see a massive fear as opposed to just, you know, some people are like, oh, they're just rude. Well, no, the more we tend to control, the more fearful we are. And I suppose a big piece of the way that I work with people is that it's not just about getting the kind of front, you know, front facing skills of a leader. It's about doing the background work because there's things that are going to be come up in your leadership that may not be safe to process in a room of your peers, which is reasonable, you know, but there is also things that absolutely has to be processed in the room with your peers. And if you can't tell the difference because you haven't gone through a process where you know your background, you know, you know, you know the values that are, are feeding your leadership, even the unconscious ones that usually come from like our first set of leaders in this world are our parents. Yeah. So if our parents are there and they're a particular way, that's our first set of leaders. If they're not there, that's also our first set of leaders. Like our experience of who raises us or doesn't, yeah. both impacts our understanding of leadership our our sense of gender comes in massively into leadership and we know it through the research so we know that um men tend to be rewarded for presenting confidently even if they're not competent we know that women are only rewarded when they show up competently confidently and relationally so like we know that there's massive research into it yeah yeah so there's these real big differences in how we reward men and women in leadership yeah. positions so one thing I'd say if you're going to turn around anyone listening to any woman and tell her just be more confident I can tell you that women are often um, degraded for being confident in leadership positions mm-hmm. and it's not as simple as giving um, advice that has been designed for hero male leadership to women or to people of color or to any marginalized group every person stepping into leadership brings multiple identities and they will both either um, foster some kind of privilege or disadvantage and so one size fits all does not work across leadership 
um, at all. And there's loads of research out there kind of pointing us to that and highlighting that to us. And mm. um, so I think that one of the really important things is to come back and say, OK, what are maybe some of the inherent notions I have about leadership? It will come back to family values, your first experience of being led, gender norms, your friendship norms, mm. class. Oh, my God, class is such a big one in Ireland and the UK. All of these things feed into what we normalize as OK as leaders. But actually, as we move forward and we start to see more of this stuff being called out, it's going to it's going to be more important that we are upskilled in that type of relational insight and mm. that type of kind of emotional intelligence, really. Yeah, actually, it's a good point to, to talk about emotional intelligence because it's a big passion of mine. Um, mm. I'm actually doing um, I've, I've done one degree on on my thesis was on emotional intelligence in leaders. Which is, which is excellent. And it was about the different um, levels of empathy in, in certain skill sets. So I interviewed um, RF fighter pilots, a couple of martial arts fighters and businessmen. And, and it was really interesting to see that they had various levels of, of you know, the emotional intelligence or self-awareness. So how, how important do you think being emotionally aware is as being a leader? And how do we get better at it? How do we improve it? Again, it's a skill. So I'm a, I'm a big believer in you can get better at it. But yeah. what would you recommend? Yeah, so, so I kind of split it in two, right? I think there's emotional intelligence, like like the non-academic. So I see it in practice in two parts. There's the emotional intelligence about my ability to understand myself, regulate my emotions, interpret what's happening, uh, make better decisions. And then there's the relational side of emotional intelligence, my ability to see how I am in interactions with others, to see how I impact others, to understand others' needs. And I think that often what happens is um, we usually we focus on one over the other and yeah. we need both as leaders, right? So one of the first things that I do informally when I work with someone is actually assess with them their level of emotional intelligence. So we informally through conversation kind of say, okay, well, did you know why that was your reaction? Did you see how that linked to this? So, so we do this kind of like review of situations and then we look at what was happening for them in the situation. And then we do a review of how some of those situations might have impacted the others in it. What I have found is that that's usually the point that people get the most stuck, because mm. usually when we have a negative experience with someone or an experience we label as negative, we decide they're wrong. Mm. We take a moral high ground. We make judgments. We we kind of try to show how we're right. We get into that weird. I'm right. They're wrong kind of approach. But but I think that the really important part to develop around emotional intelligence relationally is learning to see the other person from multiple perspectives so that you can start to address them in a more effective way. So the skill is mentalization. We all do it all day long, but it's really hard to do when we're triggered. But what I ultimately do is I ask a leader, and, and I love this exercise, I say, look, okay, tell me four different possibilities for why they had that reaction, not just the one you're invested in. Like drop that one and give me four. So did they have a bad day? Did they feel triggered by you? Um, are their defenses up because they're being challenged? Like, did you shame them unconsciously? Like, and once the person I'm working with gets to like four or five variants, they kind of step back and they say, I'm after applying a whole narrative to this person and reacted to my made up narrative about them. And that's the shift then uh, that I see actually works in, we'll say in the boardroom, it works when they're actually leading others is that little skill of being able to come up with four or five alternative options to why the person might be reacting that way or saying that thing or doing something to them can actually allow them to practice their emotional intelligence, not just be emotionally intelligent, which I think is a challenge for me. 
and um, when I work with people and they talk about emotional intelligence, they're often often talking about their assessment of themselves and they look at like one or two things they did, but they're not always looking at how they're really being emotionally intelligent in the field, in yeah. practice, in reality. And that's one of these like really simple tools that tells me how emotionally intelligent someone is being in the incident, not just is in general, because when we answer those questionnaires, we can set like I answer that questionnaire on a good day. I look really emotionally intelligent. <laughs> I answer that questionnaire when I'm arguing with my partner and I and I answer it in relation to them. Or I answer it when I'm arguing, arguing with my siblings or my parents or my co-workers. It's not going to look the same as when I answer it as a kind of general notion of myself. Yeah. So I, I think looking at emotional intelligence in practice, again, is a much better measurement in terms of your leadership. You might be really emotionally intelligent. Do you use it in your leadership? Mm. Are you understanding why your employee is really upset with you? Are you understanding why, why your you know, competition is having that reaction to you? Are you understanding why you're having that reaction to them? I think the application of it probably gives us better results than mm. just the theory and the kind of practice when we're feeling good, which mm. is the easiest time to be emotionally intelligent, like on a good yeah. day. I think emotional intelligence is a huge part of being a, a better leader, and I, and I don't think it's practiced or, or spoken about enough. And I 100% agree that there's emotional intelligence about you and your feelings, but it's it's seeing it from somebody else's point of view. Um, I was at a Halloween party the other night. I got dressed up as the mask, green face, and everything. I looked an absolute idiot. Um, Brilliant. Yeah, it was good fun. And it met this guy. He'd heard of me. I'd heard of him. Um, got on like a house on fire, had a couple of drinks. And then the person whose party it was uh, got a text off him saying, oh, John was such a really good guy. It was He was different to what I thought he was because he's in the property industry and I am. And he'd heard a lot of things about me within business because we'd grown quite quick or, or whatever. And it was just nice to see. And it was when I was prepping for this um this podcast, it was all about emotional intelligence. I wanted to, you know, grill you on that. And I thought, well, if he'd had better emotion, I hope he's not listening. If he'd had better emotional intelligence, he would have come into that conversation. In the first three or four minutes, he was very prickly. I was asking him questions mm. about, oh, are you still doing this? Do you live here? Do you do that? And it was just one word answers. And then all of a sudden, he just switched and he opened up and we got on like a house on fire. So yeah. you see this emotional intelligence, not just in leadership, but in your day-to-day style as well. Um, Completely. That's really funny because... My, my partner and I over this weekend, we were in lots of uh, social settings, which is a which is a change, right? Like a change in normal, not just because of, of uh, pandemic and everything. And I, I, I said to my partner, you know, um, that person, they they were really off. Like they just, yeah. you know, and and I, I went to judge like I was like, they were off. Like they mustn't yeah. be a nice person. That was truthfully what I thought. And my partner said they were defensive. Yeah. They were struggling. And they were defensive. And I was like, oh, of course, like, yeah. like this is like, this is my partner's bread and butter as well. But this is my bread and butter. And I'm there going, oh, there's something wrong with that person. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't like them. I'm about to reject them because I felt their defenses. And my partner's like, their defenses. That wasn't who they are. That's mm-hmm. what they were managing. And I think I think we get lost a lot in that where we see something of somebody. Our own defences gives us an opinion of them. Their defences might be present in some of the situations. And then we kind of formulate an opinion of them. But actually, that's a point in time. That's an incident um, of some sort. You know what I mean? So that person may have seen you on something, heard something you said. It triggered their defences. They're like, right, that's not my person. You know, that's not someone I'd like in my life. Met you. They're not getting that triggered. And then they get to experience you as you and they have a different opinion. And I, and I think like, 
I, I think we need to use that more because one of the things I've noticed is I say really awkward things when I get nervous. Like I call the elephant out in the room. No, I say really embarrassing things and people look at me like, and this happens frequently. People look at me and they're like, did she just say that? I, because it just comes out like, yeah. right. And it could be interpreted as rude if you don't actually kind of say, where was she coming from? You yeah. could like add a whole narrative to it. And I, I get really anxious after leaving social situations to I, like scan it to say, did I do that? Like social anxiety at its best. Like, did I do one of those things again? <clears throat> and I realized that actually, if people are going to decide that based on one really awkward comment um, that I'm a less than worthy human being, right? They might not be my people. If they can't see past that to go, do you know what? Sometimes she says really awkward things. She also says a lot of not awkward things. Do, yeah. do you know what I mean? So Absolutely. I think that we need that openness just as people more. And, and that includes myself as like, you know, judging someone for being kind of standoffish. And then my partner being like, they were, their defenses were up, they were nervous. Yeah. It's like, oh yeah, of course yeah. they were. Like yeah. that's reasonable. Yeah, I mean, a reasonable person wouldn't judge somebody on like a, a phrase or an inter one single interaction. You've got to get to know the real them. And everybody knows your defenses are up when you first meet somebody. Unconsciously, you, you just, I want to put my best put forward. So, so I won't say things that I would normally say. I wouldn't, you know, make a daft little funny joke or whatever. And so you're very prim and proper. And if people make a decision about you based on that, then I feel that's on them. You've, they've got to get to know the real you before you can formulate a, a good all round opinion. Yeah, and, and I think that that's reasonable. But I think in reality, yeah. you and I make judgments all day. We oh. all make judgments all day. So what <laughs> happens is we take a moment, we, we have a response to it and we make it like I could equally decide someone is amazing based on one good moment, right? Which mm. has not worked out well in, in my history either, right? So I think there's something here about it is normal and healthy for us to have reactions, judgments and defenses, but it's about catching them. That's the emotionally intelligent part is catching them and saying, do you know what? I don't have enough data for, for that opinion, really. Yeah. Yeah. And not trying to reinforce our data because we are really good at going to someone else and saying, that, that person there, don't they do this? And, yeah. and getting our reinforcement oh, yes. instead of yeah. being curious, you know? Yeah. So, so, yeah, so I agree with you in theory, but I think in practice, it's much harder to be curious because oh, it's yeah. not a natural defense yeah. than to just take the, the easiest judgment. Yeah, yeah, it, it's so hard not to be to make those judgments. So we're gonna we're gonna make them whether whether we want to, whether we know we're going to make a judgment, we're we're, we're still going to. Um, I just want to touch on leadership and pre-COVID, and I mean leadership is an, an evolving thing. Uh, you, you hit the nail on the head, and I think we were speaking um, off camera where we we're talking about the theory of it, and then in practice. Um, but I think leadership and has changed so dramatically in the last 18, 20, 21 months. Have you seen it change a lot and where do you see it going? Is it is it definitely going more of the inclusive variety? Mm. So it's it's changed in a lot of ways. So, so I think the pandemic has had one impact, but there was an impact leading up to that, like as the technology field st mm. started to get bigger um, and and like it's been growing for years, but it has a particular place in industry now um, and it's quite dominant. And, you know, a lot of people are are looking for work in that area so I think one of the things that's happened with leadership is that we we are moving thankfully from a hero style and um, and I remember I spoke to someone it was very funny in a leadership program I said we're moving from a hero style of leadership the individual male hero to more collective styles of leadership and he said no I disagree with you I was like no it's in the literature it's not an opinion like it's not it's not my like it's research-based 
it's like there's an evolution to leadership. I'm not saying that there's something wrong with hero leadership. I'm saying that it's not enough anymore. Um, and industry and, and uh, literature shows us that. Um, but we're moving to a type of leadership that the one person can't hold all the answers. And we had it, we, we saw it emerging over time. But what the pandemic has done is it was, it was impossible for leaders to have all the answers because they may not have had the access to some of the information that was required to lead well during the pandemic. And um, so like definitely one of the biggest thing everyone's looking for is how to lead a team remotely. And this mm -hmm. has become this like new request. But what, what we're kind of ignoring is that actually first it's understanding the needs of remote teams. It's not just about a leader suddenly having answers. It's actually, first, we have to understand the needs of people. And that's a shift that had been coming for a little bit, but the pandemic has massively sped that up. So now we're looking at the reality that actually we can't presume we know what employees need anymore. We can't presume we know what it takes for good performance. And we have to be more curious. So I think that's that has added some kind of momentum to, to kind of equalizing what leadership is. And to me, leadership is not about you. So one of the first things I get is leaders often say to me, can I be confident? I want to be more confident. And I'm like, you've got the wrong focus. Mm -hmm. Leadership is about others. You no longer lead to be good at what you do. You lead so that those that are under your charge or with you or working in your team are good at what they do. And so you lead through others' performance. It's not through your performance. So if you're, if you're looking at your leadership and you're measuring it, which was something pre-pandemic, but also our history of leadership, it was about how good you were, what good decisions you made, how much you, how much time you were given to speak at events. It was about um, how much money you made, you know, what return on investment you created. And we saw a lot of people misrepresenting their success, taking other people's success mm -hmm. and saying, oh, I did this. I, I heard an MD say something. And I remember um, he represented the piece of work he did. And I look, I was like, I know who did that work because I was working with their teams. It's like, you didn't create that. Your team created that under your charge, yes. But you didn't actually have 4 million in income. Like you didn't do that. Your six salespeople did that. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so before it was okay to do that, but now it's not okay to do that. Now people are saying, um, you didn't actually have any one of those accounts. The six of us had those accounts. You know, so, so what we're seeing now is that there's an expectation from leaders to honor how they're leading and what, the success they're creating is rather than taking ownership for it. And that's really hard for people who have built their career on taking ownership for their team's work, which often happens kind of as you go up through the ranks and organizations. We now expect people to, to honor yeah. what's really achieved it. So I think that's the biggest change that I've seen, even though there's a lot around tech now going on and there's lots of conversations about artificial intelligence. I think the biggest one is there's now an expectation that leaders don't take credit for what they haven't achieved, but take credit for being part of the team that achieved it and that they led and supported. Um, so that would be, I think, the biggest shift I'm seeing. Yeah. I, I have a rough rule of thumb. It says when, when things go well, give your team the credit. When things go wrong, you take the blame. And, and for me, that's what leadership is about. Right? You might not have actually lost that contract or you might not have done this wrong, but if you're as a leader, it, it's on your shoulders and you've got to take the blame. And it, it, another interesting point, what you said about taking credit for other people's um, work, when a leader does things well, they get their credit because their team is doing really well. They get the credit by just being the leader of a really well-performing and high-performing motivated team. So it's 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 never sat well with me when, when I watch other leaders taking credit for other people's work. and. 
to be honest, it's just poor leadership one-on-one, isn't it? Yeah, well, I, I think like in a leadership position, your job is to promote the people you lead. Yeah. Right? So, so I get really confused. I'm like, oh, are you taking up an operational management role, which is slightly different um, when, when leaders take up positions and they talk about what they've delivered on. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. So are you doing an operational management role and calling it leadership? Yeah. Has somebody given you a leadership strategic title, but you're doing operational management, mm-hmm. which would be different. Sometimes you do deliver on things. Or are you leading and not sure how to take up your authority as a leader while honoring the authority of everyone else in your team? Yeah. And look, most of us weren't taught that because old school leadership has been hero leadership. Like, like people sometimes say to me, um, can you, you know, do you have all these answers if I'm, if I'm coaching or I'm doing some uh, shadow consulting? And I'm like, no. Because if I had those answers, you would just be buying a cookie cutter result off me and applying it to your team, like more colonization, right? You just throw it out on top of your team. But what I'm here to do is help you create the components with your team for top performance Mm -hmm. in a way that's not harmful. That's the other piece of inclusive leadership. It's not about creating more harm in the pursuit of performance and deliverables. It's actually delivering in a way that's sustainable. So you can you can be a top performer without burning your team out. And, and that's a, a really important balance that I think we can lose as leaders because we can, we can see every deadline as a pinnacle moment and it's just not, Yeah. you know, but that's a very operational management mindset. So we do, we do need to also develop the mindset where a leader can think strategically, but also know how to embed it into results and performance. And I think sometimes that gets missed when we talk to leaders. Like they're either really good at the, the visionary talking or they're really good at the operational kind of measurements. But actually, you kind of need to be able to do both mm. without misrepresenting what your job is. Because if you don't know that your role is to support the performance of others and you start talking about what you've delivered on, your team don't know what your role is either. Yeah. And, and that creates a lot of confusion around like who's responsible for what. Yeah. Yeah. If, um, if you could pick a couple of tips, hot tips for our watchers and, and listeners, how to become better at leading, what would you say, what would have to happen for them to be better? Yes. Yeah, so, so I always say the first thing is ask questions. So most leaders try to have answers without asking questions yeah. because of the way that we're kind of conditioned. Right. So I think that curiosity is probably the first one. Get curious about why people ask what they ask for. Get curious about why you resist. Get curious about um, why you don't have an answer that you're trying to make up in your head. So a lot of the time leaders will say things like, I need to figure out how to improve their performance. And I'm like, great, did you ask them? No. Let's start with asking questions. So I think ask questions, a little bit of that coaching style that we talked about before we were on camera and recorded, you know, while I don't think every leader needs to be a coach, I think leaders need to use coaching skills. I think that's really important. Um, And so I would start with asking good questions and, and start to be curious. I think the second part is start to look for feedback, not just I don't mean ask people for feedback. That can be helpful. But start to notice, like, if somebody's avoiding your emails, avoiding your, like, start to take that as feedback, mm. not as something you need to attack, but as something you need to say, okay, something in their world right now feels safer to avoid me or not to answer the question or to give me responsibility. Start to look at people's behaviors, feedback about how you lead instead of just about them. Yeah. And say, okay, there's a trend here. They avoid me when this is happening or they ask for way too much advice when this is happening. 
see other people's interactions as feedback. I think that's really important. So asking questions, seeing behavior as feedback. I think the third thing is, I would always say you need, you need to be working on your own stuff. Otherwise, like your team will like perform you, will know more, will do more, will be more informed. So your own professional slash personal development, because I think when you get to a certain point of leadership, your development has to become personal as well. It can't just be like skills, like meeting skills. It has to be you as a person evolving. So I think development. So it's like questions, everything is feedback, continued development. And I think those three things give the most rounded, holistic development of a leader and probably close most of the gaps more than some of the more traditional kind of like training options that are available where people learn how to do something, but they don't necessarily learn how to evaluate what is needed in each moment. So each one of those three skills gives you more information to make better decisions. Sheila, that's been absolutely fascinating. I just want to say thank you so much. I'm a huge, huge uh, listener to your stuff. I've been consuming all your YouTube channels. So we'll put all your links to your social media profile. So if anybody wants to get in touch, strongly recommend it. Um, and I hope you've enjoyed um, listening and watching uh, Leadership Revealed. Brilliant. It was brilliant. Thanks a million for having me on. I appreciate it.